When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. He takes being cooked to a whole new level. These students can't afford to feed themselves. Do the best you can for your child. And you look around for support and there's nothing there. Just get up and do our best today and that's all we can do. Can we just talk? Call 0818 9696 decision I think ever made in the history of the state to shut it down. The second stupidest being to shut down the Yall Railway. But the West Cork Railway there's a whole plan on the table now or a whole set of ideas on the, on the table as to why you might bring that back and how you might go about bringing that back. It would probably cost an absolute fortune to do it. But look at the network you'd have. Also, there is a bunch of people up there in the high echelons of society Employers, big employers, who think it might be time to start taxing the child benefit. Now, I can't see any political party that wants to get another vote ever in its entire lifetime thinking that's a good idea. But it's up for discussion, and we get to it during the morning. Good morning to you. Oh, eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six, and plenty more besides, like dating. Interesting email yesterday from Morris on the subject of dating in Cork. Also returning to the topic of cycling. Uh, we had a call yesterday. A man's going to come on the air later on tell me why he feels unsafe cycling around the city of Cork these days. But first I want to go to the subject of mixed schools, as in co-ed schools. We were just chatting in the office yesterday, and I've always held the view. I went to a uh, all-boys school. I went to Creestree. I think uh, Fergal also went to an all-boys school. He went to Christians and a lot of people went to co-ed. Some people go to all-boys, all-girls. You kind of wonder why in 2022 do all-boys and all-girls schools still even exist? Because I kind of wonder, is it is it a natural environment? And in the context of how important it is for boys to grow up respecting women in, in, in 2022 and for us to change some of the attitudes among the men of Ireland, you'd wonder, I've often wondered anyway, how big a role could co-education play in that? Because I know I left school, whatever age I left school, and to be honest, I, I had no idea how to interact with girls or women. No clue. I had a notion, yeah, you had the Kayleys in school and the odd school disco in the other school and we went to the Grail Talk to met girls that kind of thing and I know it's a bit now since I was in school but I'm not too sure if 
a whole pile of that has actually changed. In the Educate Together system, of course, it is co-ed. And Colm O'Connor is from the Educate Together School in Cork and joins me to discuss this for a few minutes, Colm. I've kind of come to the conclusion, good morning to you, that I wonder if single-sex schools are the way forward anymore. What do you think? Well, just to say at the beginning that I went to Creestree as well, and I and I share all of the the memories that you uh, described there, and they were very fond memories in many ways. Mm. But I I also felt the same, I suppose, when I when I left school that and uh, going to college that, um, I you you're, I, I felt that you was quite unprepared for the social world, I suppose, um, in college and and that, and as a, as a parent now, and and that's the reason I was attracted to this job, I suppose, that I personally feel that. That co-education is a more natural environment for, for children to learn. Um, I'm not trying to denigrate any single-sex schools or anything like that, but that would be my that would be my opinion. You know, it's a central principle, isn't it, of Educate Together that it is co-educational. It is. They're they're all they're all co-educational schools. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Give me a brief history of the Education Together model as you understand it. Well, it, it started in the late seventies in, in in Dublin, and the there was a lot of reaction against it. In in Dock, Dock, he was the first one. Um, in fact, there was posters going around, or sorry, a pamphlet going around saying the snakes are coming back to Ireland. This this kind of thing. Mm. So it's been subjected to a lot of hostility over over time. Um, originally, there were individual schools like the Cork the Cork School Project, which is in Grattan Street, which is now Cork Educate Together National School. But there was originally about nine of those around the country, and eventually, in the nineties, they formed into Educate Together as a as a single uh, unit. And after that, then it's grown over the years. There's over a hundred schools now around around the, the country, and typically, whenever um, processes are launched to to la- to have new schools, uh, Educate Together we get maybe half of those schools, mm. but sometimes schools are decided on without any process and um, and then they're typically not given to us. <laughs> and and where, where so was the hostility? Demand, you know? Was it down to the mixed nature of the schools or was it down to the fact that they don't align or I believe you, don't, I may be wrong here, don't align to any particular religion or faith? Was it down I, to that? I think it was a really... I think it was a religion one primarily because there would have been, like traditionally, there would have been a lot of co-ed national schools around the country. Most most country schools, for example, would have been co-ed and, and still are. The, the single sex schools phenomenon is, is more of an urban, more of an urban thing. Um, so no, it was it was definitely a religion thing and it was it was a misunderstanding really. Like it was a, what Educate Together were saying was that, that we should value all children equally regardless of their background and that could be to do with their ethnicity it could be to do with their nationality it could be to do with their religion or non-belief system just everybody is individual mm-hmm. and that was considered by some to be a threat um i think unfairly so mm-hmm. um i think as society has changed i suppose yeah. society it's quite in line i suppose with the way a lot of people think now i think your personal experience, like you said, you went to an all-boys school, the same school as I did. I didn't know that, Colm. And, and now you, mm. your principal of an Educate Together, looking, taking your own experience as a youngster and the experience of the young people in your charge now, whose experience do you think is better? Um, compared to when I was in school, is it? Mm. I think my uh, I, I, what I would say about my time in, in Creestree was that I had wonderful teachers, that they inspired me in terms of social justice in particular. I could name them now, but I wouldn't. But you know, I probably um, know half of them. Yeah. 
you do for sure um and they were they were powerful role models a lot of them and um i but but there was a gap there was a kind of a blind spot and i think it was a blind spot in our whole society that we've kind of ca- caught up with in terms of you know the same-sex marriage referendum for example that if someone was gay i think it was a danger you know i think it was a dangerous society to be living in at that time in general i don't think a single sex school was a healthy place for anyone to be if they, if they were you know i wasn't but you know later on when i was a teacher i, I was teaching in a single sex school and I was terrified that one of my students was going to take his own life. So I did a master's at the time, and I did it on um, homophobic bullying. And as it happened, some of the students that I came in contact with were my past pupils, and um, they were talking about how they would have to hide their identity, you know, and um, they'd have a CD player at the time, you know, Discman, and they'd have to have, like, gangster rap on his burnt, a burnt CD, but then later on it'd be Madonna, this kind of thing. <laughs> so if anybody asked them what they were watching or what they were listening to, they'd have to play the gangster rap. You know, so there's a lot of this kind of performativity. I think that was very toxic, mm. very, very toxic. And, I and think do you some think of that, that the mixed school, well. Colm, sorry, do you think that the mixed school or the co-educational school takes that pressure off? I think it, it. I think it makes it easier, but I think it would probably be simplistic to say, "This is bad. That is good." You know, that would be unfair on on single sex schools, and it would be simplistic about co-ed schools. I think. I think values are are different because you could have fantastic values in a single sex school, and you could have appalling values in a co-ed school. Like you, you could, you could still have sexism, you could still have racism, and so on. So it's not a guarantee, but in my opinion it gives you a much better starting point to have the conversations and to develop that culture that would be um, inclusive and and valuing of yeah. of people. And I often think about the word human, you know, I, I think that schools are more human. And I think that that's kind of a harsh thing to say, maybe. But, and this is the way I understand it. Mm-hmm. To, be, to be human means kind of overcoming our prejudices with as many groups as possible and, and seeing people as individuals and yeah. then having empathy for them. And I think that if we're not in the same room as people, it's very hard to, to develop that empathy um, in any depth of, yeah. in any deep sense. So when it comes to things like um, gender violence and um, gender stereotyping, I worry that if people aren't in the same room, that they can't communicate, they can't learn to respect each other and learn to value each other as humans. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think I worry about that. One of my memories of school, and look, it's not today or yesterday that I was at school, but one of my memories of school wasn't like I was in a brilliant school like you were, Chris Reed, marvellous school, incredible education that we got. But, but, but the one thing I thought when I came out of school and went into the real world and into college and into the working world, I had to get around this notion that females, they're not actually aliens. And, and, mm-hmm. and I had to learn about women. I had a whole lot to learn about young women and girls when I came out of school that I thought think now as an adult would have been so much more valuable to me if I'd started learning that at twelve. Yeah, I think it's I think it's just that that scenario of not knowing. So it could be the same thing with with um people who are black or people who are gay or people you know, all all sorts of different groups but but obviously well, women are the biggest other group if you're if you're going to a single sex boys school. Um, I, I, I noticed there was an interesting thing in Denmark, just kind of by the way, but they have a human library. So it, just in these scenarios where people think, oh, I never, I don't know anybody who's black, that kind of thing, where you can actually go, you can order a, a meeting with somebody who's available to meet people and say, oh, this is what experience is like for me, that kind of thing. I thought that was kind of interesting, but on a macro level, like I don't think it, I don't think it's 
I don't think it helps that um, a third of our schools are single sex in secondary and 17% are in primary. Mm. And that's that's extraordinarily high in global terms. We don't think about it like that because, you know, that's what we see, that's what we know. And, and of course, the people who work there do great work and they're committed and they build communities and so on. But the only countries in the world that have higher levels of single sex schools are dictatorships. There's six or seven of them and they're all in the Arab world except Malta, interestingly. And Malta is actually quite similar to Ireland. I don't know if you know any Maltese people, but they've had the same, um, they've had the same experience. So it's post-colonial yeah. and it's a yeah. Catholic country and they've gone through all the same kind of referendum and all that that we have in, in recent years. So that's interesting yeah. to me. That, um, in terms of being a teacher, um, do you think that and uh, you, you probably possibly get a more rounded young person from from coed um, socially maybe educationally as well do you get a more rounded young person well like clearly i'm biased in where i work and so on but i i'll put it this way i was shocked when i, I went to work in brussels for for a while and i was seconded by the government and i worked in a coed school for the first time there and i couldn't believe how boys and girls spoke to each other compared to when we were in school and the kind of conversations that they had and the kind of maturity levels even of young kids so i, I think like there's no absolutes it depends on the culture of the school and the values i don't i wouldn't want to be simplistic mm. but i do believe that people um get to know each other a lot more and i think mm. that you know it's i think that our our, our perception of education we is, is problematic because we don't really have an agreed vision on what education is mm. Mm. um like in finland the purpose of education is to make society more equal that's the first goal of it. Now, that's a really strong statement, and we don't have anything like that in our imagination. It's all very kind of siloed, and you get what you can, and you use it for your advantage, and all that kind of stuff. It's very conflict-based, conflict really. Mm. And we we don't have a shared vision. I, I think we should develop one quickly, because I think education is going to be very crucial to us overcoming you know, the problems that are going to come down the road with climate change and so on. Yeah. In terms of, well, one of the things that people say... Uh, in defense of single-sex schools, all boys, all girls, is that the grades are better. Would you agree with that? Well, they, they don't. In terms of boys, very very few people argue it. In terms of boys in the literature, you, you do hear it in terms of girls. And it's an interesting area. Um, if It's like the, anything on the internet. If you look it up, you'll find evidence for both. So I, I tweeted there earlier, I found a very interesting summary of the whole area by Emer Smith you know, from the ESRA. And it's really balanced. And it goes through the history of that idea. And it comes from from the 70s in the UK. And it's a very hard thing to study because most countries don't have single-sex schools in any great numbers. So most countries like Britain and Australia, where you see those countries popping up a lot, the single-sex schools they're referring to are private schools. Mm. So they're comparing different socioeconomic backgrounds, um, different um, class backgrounds, um, and they're not... Uh, you know, to to the other schools they're comparing to. So, the data that came out in the 70s and 80s, which is what led to the mythology of of this, was debunked in the 90s. Um, and she goes through that in the article very comprehensively. And there are little things that she talks about, like in quiet schools, there's a, there might be a thing where um, boys do less well in languages because they're maybe self-conscious in front of girls something like that but again they couldn't they couldn't be sure about it 
um, because they weren't able to compare all the same factors. So um, one thing that she cites in it, she says that there's, she, there's a study of 184 studies from around the world, and the word, the word that they used once they took into account all those factors was a trivial difference. Right. So wow. like, you can read it in That's the article, but it's, it's essentially a... It is. But it, it looked like there was a bit of a difference, but then when you went, when you took into account all the factors, all yeah. and you, and you actually compared like with like, which is what you must do in a yeah. in a scientific study, yeah. then trivial was the wow. was the word they came up with at the end. Wow. Yeah, so I, I'm sure. I don't think it's. Like I don't you, think it's true. Like you said, you're you're coming from something of a biased stance standpoint here, yeah. given that you work. But personally, just as an individual, my kids yeah. are long gone from school now. But when they'll have their own children, hopefully. Yeah, I'd love to see more co-ed in Ireland. Do you? Yeah, well, it's going. I, I would. I would. I am. I, I think it's going that direction. Like every new school that's been opened, that's been publicly funded for probably a few decades, and co-ed, so that they're they're increasing all the time. And we know there's been more. There's been more amalgamations and, and such. So I was in three primary schools. I was in North Pres, the North Man, and and Scotty Street, and mm-hmm. two of the three are now co-ed. And the third, and, and the man has uh, girls, I think, in, in the early years as well. So there are changes happening around the place. Um, but quite at what pace it'll happen I, in terms of the schools that exist, I don't I don't know. Like, okay. But I think we need to think about it as a society. Okay. Colin, I listen, think. good to talk to you. Good conversation. Colin O'Connell, O'Connor, principal of Cork Educate Together Secondary School. Thanks for being with us on the Opinion Line. Throwing it open to the floor as they say at the committee meeting, throwing it open to the floor, particularly to listeners who have smallies, two, three years of age, maybe, you know, you're thinking about preschool. But what kind of a school would you like them to go to? Would you prefer your kids to go to an all-boys or an all-girls? Would you prefer them to go to uh, co-ed? If you think co-ed is wrong, why? If you think same single-sex schools is wrong, why? If you don't particularly care, why? Um, what are your thoughts? If you, And people have just recently finished school or, you know, finished school in the last maybe 10 or 12 or 14 years, getting on in life now. Your own education, was it same sex? Was it, was it co-ed? What values did it give you? And, and in order for young men and young girls or for young men to un, maybe have more respect for young girls and more understanding of young girls, is co-ed, more co-ed, the way to go? We're thinking about it. 0818 96 96 96. Antoinette went to a mixed primary and secondary. You could see the difference in attitudes to boys and girls from those who went to single-sex schools. Girls were embarrassed to sit beside a boy because they didn't know how to interact with them. And Kevin went to an all-boys national school and mixed thereafter, so I can only use my kids as a gauge because they went to mixed schools here and the UK. Their best friends, all of them, are of the opposite sex. That's interesting. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie what you mean? Got my eyes on a prize, that's me. Manchester City are the champions. Number one, that's top of the league. The best football league in the world is right here. Firmino with the flick. Salah! Fernandez, he's going to go for goal. Oh, what a goal. The Premier League Live. Powered by Top.
Top Sport. Join me, Trevor Welch, exclusively online at 96fm.ie. Tune in Saturdays as we ramp up the excitement for the day's biggest games. We'll bring you pre-match analysis, live commentary and in-depth interviews with some legends of the sport. The Premier League Live with Now. Join in the experience with a Now Sports or Sports Extra membership. Listen every Saturday exclusively online at 96fm.ie or download the Cork's 96fm app. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96FM. Yeah, you're taught to welcome on same-sex schools, particularly if you have children or uh, co-ed schools. If you have children coming up to school age, what are your preferences for them? And why? Would it be based on your own background and your own school history? 0818 96 96 96. Now, I'm not too sure there's a political party in the country that's going to take this and run with it if they ever want another vote. There could be a few queer hawks out there who just might. But IBEC, that's the Employers Federation, has claimed that child benefit should be taxed and that the savings from that tax or the gains from that tax be ring-fenced for early years services. Now, the child benefit is probably one of the most broad universal payments, maybe the only broad universal payment we have in the country, in that a family on the poverty line that just about manages to make ends meet gets child benefit for every child they have that's eligible. And so too does Paul Reed say from the HSE, who's on 400 and odd thousand a year, his family, if he has children eligible, he gets child benefit. That's just the way it's always been. And I back reckon maybe, maybe it's time to start looking at that as taxable income. Louise Bayliss is from Spark, single parents acting for the rights of kids. Louise, good morning. Good morning, how are you? Good. Do you think there's a political party in the country would take this and run with it? I would hope not. I think it's an absolutely ludicrous idea. It's the one universal payment, as you said, and it's for the child. And every child should be born equal and entitled to it. And I know what you said, you know, people will be saying, as you just said there, Paul Reed's children get it. And so does somebody. I'm just picking someone in the high profile with a big salary, you know. Oh, yeah. No, no, I know. I know. Yeah. But I just I I agree with you. Somebody on 400,000 a year is getting it and somebody not working is getting it. But there are other things. There's targeted supports for people on low incomes. So for people in social welfare, there's the qualified child increase. And to be fair, over the last, say, five years, this, anybody on child benefit will know child benefit has remained stagnant at 140 euro a month and the qualified child increase has been going up so they are putting limited resources into improving that for people on lower incomes and that's good but the keeping the universality of that payment is really positive and, and taxing it in some way um, really diminishes it and another thing that we know this financial abuse goes on in all levels of income and in all parts of society and for many women and for many Many people living at home and not um, working outside the home, that is their only independent source of income and taxing that because of a high earner who is not the right thing because that the other dependent person may not have access to funds. And this is one way of making sure that everybody in the country has access to some independent financial means. Generally speaking, it's paid into mum's bank account. Yes, 
Yes, and that was done to give, I mean, so many people, so many women, as you know, would have been pushed out of the labour market because of the marriage ban. Now they're not pushed out, but because of the high care costs of childcare, many women do end up giving up their jobs. So their only source of income is is the child benefit and also it feels like a payment to them i mean it's very demoralizing and i'm sure anybody listening who's had to give up their job to mind children it's very demoralizing to have had your pace to have a had a monthly salary or a weekly paycheck and then suddenly to have no income and that child benefit coming in every month is a source of of at least some acknowledgement mm. that you are doing work and raising children is work and it's hard work and you know it's it's important even for the psychological benefit to see that money coming in and untaxed it's so important for women and let's be honest do we actually think that if this did go in place that the money would be ring fenced and, and suddenly we'd have mm. an effective early childcare system I don't think that would be the case and also I think early childcare is, is a right in its own self mm-hmm. it shouldn't be paid for out of child benefit i mean we don't think that you know whenever it was brought in 60 70 years ago when donegal mali brought in second level education it was seen as the right of the child to get that we need to start looking at early early learning in the yeah. same way that it's everybody's right yeah i guess on an economic argument an entirely economic argument a family surviving on the average industrial wage or the much less, you know, low paid economy wages that are out there compared to a family bringing in a six figure sum, you know, the child benefit is a lot less necessary to the family on the six figure sum, one could argue, and and they could maybe afford to pay a bit of tax on. Yeah, absolutely. They possibly can afford to do it. But firstly, I'd say the point that we don't know who has access to the funds in that family. But we, you know, just because your your partner may be on 100,000 a year, you may not have access to independent funds. So that's one argument. The other argument is, if you're on 100,000 euro, you are paying a lot of tax anyway. Yeah. Surely to God, pay, getting 140 euro back is some sort of reprieve for the tax you're paying. And then thirdly, if you are on a low income and you have children, the working family payment comes into play with that and it tops up your income based. And per child, it means a net income increase of about 60 euro a week per child, depending on what income you're on. So there are those targeted supports for, for firstly, people on social welfare, and then secondly, for the working family payment for people who are working but below a certain income threshold. So there are those supports. But I think taxing some, like, if, if I was, and I'm not, unfortunately, if I was earning €150,000 and the only payback I was getting was my child benefit and you want to tax that too I think I'd feel pretty aggrieved that my child is not being treated the same as anybody else even though I'm paying more tax so I think from all points of view it's just a fairer way and it's the one thing I think it's for the benefit it, it, it's something that's kind of the state is saying we value children we support children and every child should get that regardless if they're born in, an, in a household that is has no income or they're lucky enough to be born in a high income family it's the universality of of it we we have we don't tax children going into national school you know we don't expect parents to pay more for their child to go into primary school or secondary school you know it's that universality that is is important to keep hold of that principle and, and as i said i do think it's an acknowledgement of the work 
that in, in general, not always, but in general, the, the care work women are doing at home. And it, it is that psychological benefit to get that payment into your account every month and feel like you've earned something mm-hmm. at least. Okay. And it's your money. It's your money. Louise, thank you very much. Louise Bayless from Spark Single Parents Acting for the Rights of Kids. Ibeck say that it would only be for the higher income families kept at the same rate then for those on a lower income. Now, the one question that I would ask when they say that, and I'm reading from a news website, would be define higher income. That would be my question. What would you think, though? The idea that for for wealthy families, and maybe I was wrong in using Paul Reid as an example, but he's probably one of the highest paid people in the country, one of the highest paid prominent people in the country at the moment. His children are as entitled to child benefit as as the children of someone working on an ordinary working wage or even less than minimum wage from catering or minimum wage from retail, anything like that. Do you think that Paul Reid or, or anyone like him, that his child benefit, their child benefit in that family should be taxed? Your thoughts, 0818 96 96 96. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie The Two Grand Minute. Listen to play at 7.40 and 8.40 every day. Answer 10 questions to claim all that cash. Stacking up the cash. Cash! Cash! The two grand minute. On Casey and Ross in the morning. Corks 96 FM. Don says, what about only paying it to those who contribute to the tax system? Well, that's the benefit of a universal payment, Don. It goes to everybody and it's paid for the child. But Don's question, why not pay it to those who contribute to the tax system. You could all also argue we all contribute to the tax system in our own unique way. Couldn't you? You could argue that. Every time you buy a bottle of milk or something, you pay VAT on it. That's the tax system. And then DJ says, how about using our existing taxation system? A couple of comments coming in too on same-sex schools versus co-ed schools. I'll, I'll come back to them. Here's a list of West Cork locations. You will know them all. Bandon, Skib, Clon, Baltimore, Inishannon, Skull, Kinsale, Dunmanway, McCroom, Drimaleague, Timaleague, Timaleague, Courtmac, Upton, Ballonhasic. What have they got in common? Apart from the fact that they're all in West Cork. It's not a million years since they were all in some way or other connected by rail. We had a magnificent network of railway in in West Cork uh, in history. And it was done away with in the 1960s, the early 1960s. And all of the tracks were sold for scrap and the land was given to farmers. We had a magnificent network of railway going into West Cork and I've always felt it was a most stupid thing to shut it down. Now, there's a report has been published arguing for opening it up again, and here's how we might be able to do it. It's come from the Cork Commuter Coalition. Their spokesman is Kieran Mears, and he joins me now. Kieran, good morning. 
Hi there. Good to be speaking to you today. I, I often struggle with what kind of political nonsense was happening in the early 1960s to wrap up what was just... it. Imagine how wonderful it would be to have that network today. I know, right? It really is such a shame that all these excellent railroads were torn up in the 60s. It probably is one of the most short-sighted planning decisions in Irish history, and it's certainly been felt by the residents of Westcourt today, even so, even still. Yeah. When you look at the amount of commuter traffic that could be coming from West Cork. We see it in East Cork where there's a, a railway line now down to Middleton and Cove and all those places. The commuter traffic from East Cork has benefited from that. If you could get a West Cork railway going. Now here's the question, Kiron. How would you go about doing it? It would probably cost an absolute fortune, but that's what your report looks at. Yeah, it would be expensive, but I think over the long term it absolutely would be worth it. I mean, you see, like you've mentioned there, what the rail line has done for East Cork, where it's created vibrant hubs where people live and do business and work in places like Cove and Carrickool and Middleton. I think, all things considered, being able to do the same thing for West Cork towns would be very, very beneficial. As well, costs would probably be spread out over quite a long period, and so it would be a bit more feasible in the long run as well. Mm. You look in your report at three particular corridors. Cork to McCroom, Cork to Bandon, Clonakilty, Skibbereen, all the way down to Bantry, and Cork to Passage West and Kinsale. Now, back in the day, Cork to Bantry was two hours. It would be much faster these days, and it would be an incredible spine through West Cork. Absolutely. Even things now, if there was to be such a system, it would be electrified using completely electric um, infrastructure. So it would be a lot faster than the two hours that it was back in the day. And it really would be great for people that are commuting. Like, even the response that we've seen to the report has been really positive. People saying that it would be great and it would make, say, commuting to college to UCC a lot more easier and more feasible. It would give them, say, opportunity to live in uh, Clonakilty or Bandon or commute and commute to court for, say, one meeting a week that they might need. Yeah, in a time when we are looking at more, more remote working, that, that is exactly what it would, it would be there for. So from, from where does your report go now? It goes into an All-Ireland Strategic Rail Review, correct? Yes. So currently the Department of Transport is engaging with the relevant actors in Northern Ireland as well on, under a scheme called the All-Ireland Rail Review. So this is going to look at the national network and examine places that don't have rail service that would benefit from it. So places like Donegal, Navin, and of course West Cork. So what we're hoping is that if there are enough submissions from people in West Cork that feel like they absolutely need, you know, better rail service, better infrastructure, better public transport, and they give their opinions on the website at strategicrailreview.ie, that this will be carried forward and there will be a proper feasibility study enacted over the next few years. Okay. It's a long-term project, but it, it's certainly, reading it, you think it's a no-brainer. To, to do it exactly so it will take a while and it won't be easy but the good effects of it absolutely will be felt for decades and decades to come alright Kieran, good speaking with you Kieran Mears Cork Commuter Coalition strategicalreview.com forward slash feedback is a website where you can look at more detail on the plan being down in, I remember being down in Baltimore a couple of years ago, just down for a spin on a holiday weekend, down on a Sunday and had the bit of lunch in bushes as you do and went for a wander.
beautiful, beautiful June Sunday afternoon, wandering around, and the old railway station in Baltimore, I think there's a sailing school there, or a dive school, or some kind of a little school there. And the missus was with me, and she, I said, there was a railway station. She said, there used to be a railway down here? I said, yeah, all the way down, all the way down to Baltimore. And she looked at me, she goes, what idiot decided it was a good idea to get rid of that? And if you go down to, and it's one of the most wonderful places you can spend an afternoon, the Clonakilty Railway Village, and take a walk around it, and look at where the rail used to serve in that fabulous little little tourist attraction. It's a no-brainer. Absolute no-brainer. 0818 We're getting a few calls of this nature in the last day or two. I'd like to complain about it being very hard to get the booster cert if you got your booster in a pharmacy. I'm ringing this number, 1-800-807-008, and you're waiting and waiting and waiting waiting, and then it cuts off. It's ridiculous. The time is coming when you'll need them. They're doing nothing about it. Yeah. A lot of the booster certs coming out electronically. Some people haven't gotten them yet. Some people want to get them in the post and have a printed one. But the pharmacy, we're getting a few calls about this. If you went to a pharmacy for your second or your booster jab, how do you go about it? And that number, I don't seem to be getting any great response from it. one 800 807-008. We've had three or four calls now in that way. Uh, Gary says, my parents were in Clondruhad, McCroom. I remember my dad saying how there used to be a good rail system from McCroom to Cork, which he'd love to have now to utilise as he's getting older and thinking about giving up his car. So there you go. It should never have been taken away. On child benefit, why don't, why don't the IBEC members pay an extra 1% on their corporation tax? That would bring in far more money than taxing child benefits, says Craig. And Willie, I think anyone on 100k a year shouldn't even get child benefit. Never mind taxing it. If you can't run a household on that salary without state help, you have no business having a family. You hear of child benefit paying for holidays. I say don't tax it, means test it. Not down to a poverty level, but people on high incomes shouldn't have their hands in the pot. Kate says, I see the difference here in Carrigaline. The way the co-eds treat each other with such respect. They meet up for coffee and everything after school. Another call. I asked my son, was there much bullying in the co-ed school? He said, no. I asked my daughter the same thing. She said, the boys wouldn't want the girls to see them bullying. Now, having said that, I do prefer single sex for national school. Why? Because I think boys learn their strength as juniors and they can be very rough with girls at that age, even when meaning no harm. Tim says, good interview with Colm. Opens up a debate on the final hurdle in society. It's about power. It would be interesting if a researcher profiled the education of the cabinet, because therein would show some bias, Tim seems to think. 0818 Now, Nicole Ryan has been working so hard to qualify as an addiction counsellor, and we were all really proud of her when she did qualify in recent times and she's putting that training to work now and she came out recently very publicly to say that she had been hearing from parents that an awful lot of teenage sons are using or seem to be using steroids and the parents are finding needles in their son's gym bags it's a serious one Nicole good morning good morning Peter how are you hi 
It is, it is. Unfortunately, um, it's kind of gone under the radar for a little bit, you know, with COVID, with lots, lots of other things happening. But steroid use, yeah, especially a lot amongst younger, younger men, I suppose, teenage men, is kind of on the rise, mm-hmm. which is quite worrying. They, of they, course, they, for would parents. they would obviously think these things are no harm. They just help me to look good. But that's not true. That's it, you see. And sometimes what happens is like maybe some of them might be going to the gym. And what I've heard a lot of the times is actually some of the personal trainers at these gyms would be providing them. Mm. Um, not very openly, but, you know, you might know somebody and they'll say, oh, Johnny has some, go up to him and ask him, etc. And when they're getting them, they don't get the full lowdown on what the side effects could possibly be or how harmful they could be to them. Mm. Um, so they do think that it's kind of harmless, you know. What, what kind of side effects can there be? And I suppose, can you get addicted to them? So you can't physically be addicted to them, but what happens is a lot of the time people get psychologically addicted to the to the results. So, you know, you get, the more you take, the bigger you get, and you start to, you know, get really addicted to that feeling and looking good and feeling great, let's say. Um, and some of the side effects include for men, for instance, is like shrinking of their testicles. Baldness is a big thing. Um, for women, which is not only exclusive to men, women then would also could, you know, it disrupts their menstrual cycle, their voice could deepen, they could start growing facial hair. And then especially then when it's teenagers, because as you know, they're going through adolescence, they're growing, taking steroids on top of that stunts their growth. And also that's just the physicality. Now there's also internal things like, you know, you could have a heart attack, organ damage, all that mm. kind of stuff that goes along with it. Mm. There's a thing as well, you, you see it sometimes, roid rage, in that it can affect the... Roid temper, rage, temper. yeah. Yeah. That's huge. And it's just, it's just so, it's so bizarre to see it because the person will go from zero to 100 in two seconds. It could be something you said to them, they'll take it up the wrong way and they'll go from being absolutely polite to just kind of manic almost. It's quite scary to see that. Yeah, and this would be a normally mild-mannered youngsters. Well, yeah, see, unfortunately with younger guys especially, some of them might suffer from like body dysmorphia and stuff where they are looking at themselves and they might think that they need to be bigger or they're not happy with their appearance because you see a lot of things online about guys who are fit and healthy and all this kind of stuff. So they're trying to emulate that. But it's not only exclusive to like guys who maybe play sports and stuff. It could be just like you could be somebody that's getting bullied at school for your weight or your your height or your lack of, you know, muscle or something like that. Just because you're growing or you might be growing a little bit behind than everybody else and that could lead to steroid use as well. What advice would you have for parents who are concerned? Always with parents it's just it's such a sensitive topic because you know at the core something's going on with your child psychologically they're not happy with the way they look so it's approach with care with love and not flying off the handle not accusing them of anything but just opening the conversation and just saying you know what's going on with you is everything okay how are you feeling like this because I think sometimes what people don't realize when they use steroids is that for instance you can take them as tablets but you can also inject them and when they're injecting it's kind of a weird phenomenon but they don't see themselves as as injecting drug users so they wouldn't see themselves as somebody who might inject heroin for instance but the same risks apply here when you're using needles so like hep c hep e um hiv other infections abscesses in the arms that's that's also equal to steroid use yeah so just be be wary and of course it's parents looking at youngsters who are into their fitness and into their health you think oh that's absolutely great but 
this could be going on as well. So just just keep in touch with them, I guess. Keep keep. Exactly. There's absolutely nothing wrong with them doing it for the right reasons. So like going to the gym and eating well, all that is perfect. But if they have started to use steroids or if you notice that they're getting really big, really quickly, unnaturally quickly, then there might be an indication that something's going on. Before I let you go, Nicole, it would be wrong of me to not remember that the anniversary, Alex's anniversary is very soon. Is it next week, the weekend? Yeah, it's this Sunday. This Sunday, it'll be six years. My goodness, six years. I know, it's it's mad. And like today, was the, today's the 19th, so like today, six years ago, I would have got the call when I was on the ship. So it's just oh bizarre at the moment, just reflecting back where I was six years ago. Okay. Well, you know what? As I've often said to you before, he'd be very, very proud of his sister now. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks, PJ. Lovely talking to you. That's uh, Nicole Ryan. 0818 96 96 96. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie the lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 0818 966 966. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Following that story, just as distance, it's another part of the if you're a rugby fan in particular, I think because Tonga is a rugby playing nation, you find yourself keeping an eye. This is the kind of thing we do when we're looking at foreign news. We look at places, the names of which we recognise. There's some kind of bias about it. They, they give it a familiarity bias or something like that. But interested enough in Tonga uh, and, and what's going on in the wake of that volcano and tsunami. But did you know, Tonga, the biggest problem that they're concerned about now is getting the aid in, obviously get the aid in and sort out the people that are affected by the by the volcano and the tsunami. The biggest problem they've got now is trying to keep COVID out because Tonga has a population of about 106,000 people and it's dozens of different islands, but it's a population of about 106,000 people. It has had, since the start of the pandemic, one case, one case of COVID that got in and the person was immediately slammed into a quarantine hotel, locked up there for two weeks and then had to leave again. And they went into a brief lockdown of seven days just to make sure it wouldn't spread. Their fear now is having been probably the only place in the world which remained almost entirely COVID-free, that they'd have a surge of Omicron or whatever into the community. So that worries them on top of the on top of the worry of the of the tsunami. 0818-969696. James, thank you for this, James. The railway station in Baltimore is not a sales school. The railway station is still there. It's kind of hidden away. It's a gem of an old red brick building. Oh, it's beautiful. It would be just right for revamping. We also have two great tunnels in West Cork just waiting to be used, still intact. If you look on YouTube, there's a guy who puts up videos of the various engineering to do with railway, not just stations, but tunnels and crossings and things. He does walking tours as well, and it's fascinating. I forgot his name, though. Yeah, I I don't think it, it, I think that maybe I came across as saying it was a sales school. The the last time I was down there, it's a few years ago now, it would be maybe 2018, uh, that way around. There was some kind of a 
facility using it just to store their gear and stuff in the in the railway station. But it is. It's a gorgeous old red brick building. It's If you take a walk off the main thoroughfare as it was in Baltimore, you'll find it. It's beautiful. And you, you, it, it just... The, 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 the how we came up with the idea of shutting it down. Mind you, Richard says in the 60s when it closed, the CIE executive went to meet with a deputation of 10 people from West Cork. First thing he asked was, can I see your tickets? Only one of them had a ticket. The people themselves closed it with their choices, which is another way of looking at it. 0818 96 96 96 on child benefit. How are you, PJ? Uh, just because it's universal and everyone who has a child can obtain it and are entitled to it, it doesn't mean they have to. I know a few people who felt they earned enough to care for their kids and thus never claimed for child benefit when they had children. Then another call says all benefits should be means tested. It would be a much fairer system all round. Your thoughts? Yesterday we were chatting with Sharon, the matchmaker, about dating and about it being only a few weeks out now for Valentine's Day and preparing yourself for the world of dating and preparing yourself to try to find love or try to find a partner. We got an email in from Morris. And Morris has... Uh, he sees... I, I think he sees... Fiona, you, you got it in front of you there. I think he sees drink as a big problem. I think Morris sees... Morris, thank you very much, by the way, for this email. And it's given us a lot of food for thought, PJ. There's drink is a big issue, but it's also... Um, the way people live their lives at the minute and Morris believes that we're, that a lot of people are maybe too selfish to have time to allow somebody else into their lives. Um, the email says people cannot stop talking about jobs, money and careers when they're out on a date. If they're to be honest with themselves, the only person they can really get along with is themselves because they're so conceited and self-centred. In this country, there's also a live-to-work culture by people who haven't a minute for themselves, never mind any kind of relationship. They know something is missing but are happy to return to their groundhog routines and continue to date when they can get around to it and waste their own time and everybody else's. The Irish are hopeless at sober dating and are much better in attitude when they're full of drink when most people pair off. That is if they can remember who they were with the night before as they get over their blinding hangovers. So thank you very much for that, Morris. And there's a couple of points, PJ. Mm. Um, do you know, like the first point that he was making there about people talking about themselves when you're out on a date, is that not the point of the date though? <laughs> Are you not to find out about each other, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, if you weren't going to talk about yourself and you weren't going to talk about your job and your money or whatever, you know, what are you going to talk about? Because <laughs> you have to exactly. try to get to know each other. So you, you've just met this person, you've got a couple of menus, and you've ordered a bottle of wine. Now, tell me about you. That's the most natural conversation <laughs> in the world. It is. But I do get this point that, um, you know, that we do live to work um, yeah. in this, in, in Ireland and in society in general, I think. Think. And you often hear people say, oh, I don't have time to meet somebody or I don't have time to go for dates. And maybe that is something that a lot of people are guilty of, that they're not making time in their day to, mm. to go and meet somebody for a date. Um, but the other issue then about uh, sober dating, I know some people do like to have a glass of wine to try and <laughs> lighten the mood and, and maybe if they're a little bit nervous. But um, I think a lot of people now, you know, uh, maybe go for coffee, mm. you know, because they are maybe afraid to go out and get drunk because you don't really know what's going to happen. So mm. I think people are a lot more careful now about who they're meeting and where they're meeting. And I, I've heard of a lot of people People going on coffee dates rather than going to the pub. Yeah. You and I are well out of the dating scene for a long. I wouldn't. I wouldn't know how to start. 
to be honest. Not too sure about you. I know, yeah. Um, I'm kind of glad that I'm out of the whole dating scene now. But, um, you know, just talking to friends of mine um, who are still in the dating scene and uh, are on the dating scene and they say that it is quite difficult to meet people and to get to know people and whether that's because people are really busy or because everybody is dating online now and, um, you know, it's, it's hard to maybe trust somebody. So I don't know, like maybe our listeners might let us know, PJ, what, mm. you know, if they are dating people are they finding it hard to meet people are they finding it hard to um you know f- find the time to meet people or if mm. they are out on a date is the other person just constantly talking about themselves and are a total bore <laughs> I, I i see morris's point on drink but 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 the simple fact of the matter is i of all the people that i know who are in good relationships or married or anything like that an awful lot of them met in a pub or a club so for the last two years i mean i met my wife in a nightclub I met my husband in a nightclub. Yeah, I, no, I met. I should maybe I should admit it. I spilled a pint of Guinness down the front of a white dress. That's, oh my god! Uh, <laughs> no, no. She bought me a pint of Guinness. And I spilled it straight down the front. And she stayed with you. And, she's, and yes, that was thirty something years ago. Um, but like, I think people who are who would you know socialise normally in pubs and clubs, and maybe meet people there and. Date, start to start dating. You meet someone in the pub, it's kind of a heft- and you say, right, you want to meet somewhere quieter, go for coffee, go for lunch. Mm. That sort of starting point hasn't been there for the last couple of years. I mean, getting chucked out of the pub at eight, now it's probably going to change in the next few days, but getting chucked out of the pub at eight o'clock, that's not conducive to meeting someone. No, and I think maybe during the pandemic as well, I know we spoke on air to Mairead two weeks last year about the difficulties that people had trying to find a partner because a lot of places weren't open and because, as you said, you know, the nightclubs weren't open. So you mightn't have had that initial meeting point with people. So um, it has been a difficult time for people. And I, I think it might have changed the whole dating scene. Yeah. Well, we see what people what people think. Anybody who has been trying to trying to date over the last year or two or trying to date in general in Cork in 2022... What are the challenges? Could you not be bothered at all? Because it's just impossible. How do you feel? On the railway, uh, my fortune, a fortune, Eugene, says a fortune will be spent on the study for the West Cork Railway. It'll run totally over budget. Then they'll have to charge so much for tickets that few people will use it. Why not just improve the road and the bus links from day one? Ed... Hi Ed, down in lovely Cape Clear. Uh, read the West Cork Railway. About 20 years ago, Cork County had a weekend seminar with community leaders. One of the things that repeatedly came out was a West Cork Railway. It needs to be built further inland than the abandoned Skib Road to avoid the inevitable flooding. But it could be a corridor for power, water and broadband connections. And it could also use hydrogen. Yeah, I, I, th- I think it would be a no-brainer to even think about looking at it back. I met my other half at work in the paper, which I presume is the examiner. He used to call in looking for the half-time scores. We were not supposed to give them out, but I was pestered. Eventually gave in and started telling him. Then it started for a date, and sure, I gave in to that as well, and look at us now. <laughs> 0818 96 96 96. Something else that came up on the programme yesterday was cycling. I spoke to Dan about how he feels cyclists are taking their lives in their hands at night with no dark, no clothes, no no bright clothes, no high-vis, no lights on their bike. That was Dan's point of view. Other cyclists were saying, look, we, we need a better infrastructure and all of this. Um, Tom, 
wanted to say something about it. I'll talk to you next. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. 96FM. So yeah, we were talking yesterday to Justin Fleming. Uh, this was ahead of a presentation by the Cork Cycling Campaign to the Eroctus Committee, looking at ways of improving cycling in the city. Then Dan, who's a taxi driver, said a lot of cyclists put themselves in danger by not lighting themselves up at night. Tom was listening to that discussion and joins me now. Hi, Tom. Good morning. Hi, PJ. How are you? Good. Your thoughts? You you are a cyclist, and I think you bring your child around on the bike as well. Your, your thoughts? Yeah, look, I suppose it's important from the outset there, uh, PJ, just to state that I'm a member of the Cork Cycling Campaign as well, okay. okay? And I actually represent the Cork Cycling Campaign at a national level this year, and the cyclist.ie, um, which is the umbrella group for cycling groups are, um, around the country so represents um, at a national level okay mm-hmm. so I would consider myself um, I've been a utility cyclist or a transport cyclist as we call it or, um, or an everyday cyclist actually is what we prefer to call it for about five years now um, and for the last two years I've had a cargo bike and I transport my son who's almost two uh, I transport him in, in the cargo bike okay mm-hmm. so I suppose what, what's the point I'd like to make there and, and I suppose like, first of all, there's a requirement by law to have a light, front and rear light on your bike after what's called lighting up time mm. in, in Ireland, okay? So that we absolutely um, promote that and support that, okay? Mm. Now, the other thing is that high-vis vests and helmets and all this kind of stuff, it, it, kind of, it kind of takes away from the main point, right? Because you can be lit up like a Christmas tree, right? You know, like a bit, on my cargo bike now, I have front and rear lights built into the bike. I have my own set of lights that are C-Sense lights. They're widely considered to be the... Um, the best in standard, or one of the best in standard out there. Okay, I sent a picture to your to your if you wanted this morning, your researcher about the um, the high vis vest that I've got made up um, in recent days. Only actually, right? Sure. I don't know if you've seen the picture, but it's a red high vis vest. Yeah. Okay, I kept it local, red, red for Cork, and I've got it. I brought it to a printing shop, and it's cost me you know twenty five quid to do this, but but I don't mind doing that. And it has child on board, is what I've printed on the back yeah. of the, yeah, of the vest. And I've had to do that through. True. I felt that was necessary to do that. Now, as a cycling advocate and as someone who you know cycles every day, I know that's not going to necessarily keep me and my son safe. But at the same time, I feel that at least it's sending a message that you know, surely if a motorist coming up behind me with my son in the in the bike, and I have a, a high vis vest that says you know a child on board, it's the same thing. It's the same concept as a child on board sticker in a car. You know, mm. hold back, give me give me a bit of space. I might be turning left. I might be turning right. You know, so so I suppose the kind of the, the, the high vis and the lights and all that stuff, right? While helpful, they're only useful if a motorist is looking at you, like you know what I mean. And and unfortunately, we know that in the modern cars and in the modern world with phones and sat navs and um, car stereos and uh, hands-free kits and all this kind of stuff, mm. distraction is a massive issue, like so that that's where infrastructure comes in as well. Because if you have proper infrastructure and if you segregate a cyclist from the road and from a motorist, then you're eliminating that that risk. Then they're almost straight away, you know. So look, it's I, I didn't want to come on here today, right? I also it's important that I also state that I'm also a motorist. Sure. Okay? So I have a car. We have a family car, and I often take the small man in in the car as well. And so I I wasn't interested in coming on here today to kind of go, oh bloody motorist, bloody this, bloody that. No, I'm no. a motorist myself. 
Sure. What I mean, you, what would you, you sound like you're an extraordinarily careful cyclist as well with all the lights and the high vis. But what would you make of Dan's point on the show yesterday? He believes you'd be in a minority, especially at night. Well, uh, yeah, I wouldn't agree with that. I mean, look, like like we're involved in the cycling campaign. We've over 400 members, okay? There's about 60 of us who are very, quite, very active. Like, And all of these, these would be really responsible people. I mean, these are people that are all, you know, they're teachers, they're planners, they're architects, they're, you know, they're all these kind of professions and, and all these kind of people. And, you know, we, we promote cycling as an everyday activity. So, you know, I, I don't see, like, I don't kind of think that's a, a massive issue. There's probably people going around without lights and without high vis, and we wouldn't support that. We would we would tell them to definitely lights. Lights are very important, okay? Because lights will also help you see yourself. You know, if you if you come kind of leave the city area and come into a more a more rural area, but I I don't know if it's if it's that big an issue really. And I suppose the other thing is that you know you do, and this isn't to flip it on motors like, but you often see motors coming towards you with no lights on as well. So that's you know that's. That's mm. much more dangerous. You know what I mean? So well, I think, most modern I cars now, them. most modern cars, Tom, uh, have a thing called DLR or DRL mm. that can't be turned off, so they would be lit up. Yeah, well, I still, I still come across a fair few, like you know, and I think mm. sometimes maybe it's in the old cars that people are just possibly, have. Possibly. And you know, which, uh, all I would do is try and flag it and go, "Look, Jesus, your lights aren't on." Yeah. How about infrastructure? So, There's been a lot of change. There's a lot of lanes gone in. A lot yeah. of cycle lanes around the city. Your thoughts on those? Yeah, I mean, look, that's I have a very good example there. For example, on Sunday, myself and my wife and my son, we went from we live in Ballin College, and we decided to go down to the Marina Market down in Centre Park Road and I mean the infrastructure that's gone in around there is, is, is you know has improved the situation down there usually right so the Salt Mall is a great example okay mm. um, I'm an experienced utility cyclist and my previous job I would have often had to go to City Hall and I used to hate it PJ because you'd come on you come off Grand Parade and onto Salt Mall and you'd have three, three lanes heading one direction park, parking you know people reversing out on top of you and then people hovering looking for the, the prized Salt Mall parking space and that the two way segregated cycle lane has made such a difference in that street. Um, I, I commented to my wife, we were stopped at the lights actually waiting to to head head towards Grand Parade and I said, Jesus, what a difference this has made. Mm. Like, you know? So that's a very good example. But the problem with that is that is first of all trying to get onto it from the Grand Parade, you have to cross traffic and, and join the lane. And second of all then when you when you come onto the Grand Parade um, heading west, you have to join the footpath so you're, you're in conflict with pedestrians so the problem there is there's no coherence, so it's 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 um, it's not connected, so while we have some decent stuff gone in and a lot of it actually has happened since COVID or as a result of, of COVID um, with bollards and things like that it needs to be joined up and it needs to be more coherent like there's, in the National Cycling Manual there's um, the five needs of cyclists and the two most important ones to them for me are road safety and coherence and I suppose Cycle lanes, segregated cycle lanes offer road safety and then a connected cycling network will offer coherence, you know. So mm-hmm. there's been huge improvements, um, but like there's an awful lot yet to be done. Yeah. And I think, now, now, now the comments you know, come in every day we have a conversation like this, Tom, mm-hmm. and I, I'm sure you know yeah. where I'm going, Tom, with this one. The day that the cyclist starts paying a tax to use the road is the day they'll get more facilities. <laughs> Oh god, I think that's a great one. Yeah, it's yeah. an old so, one. It comes up. Answer it though. Yeah. Or can you? What's oh, your... no, I, I, I can answer it, no problem. So, so the motor tax is a, was a tax brought in two thousand eight. It's a CO two emissions tax. Okay, so it's a, you you pay it based on the amount of basically on the amount of damage your car is doing to the environment. Okay, so how how your emissions are. 
So bicycles are zero emissions, okay? Now, there's a, there's a bit of a misinformation, I suppose, I'll call it out there, that motor tax pays for roads. It doesn't. It, it, the exchequer pays for roads. So anybody who pays tax, the money goes into the exchequer, and then the exchequer pays for all the services out there, roads, you know, schools, uh, hospitals, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a couple. And the other point I'd make on that, PJ, is that if you see me cycling down the road on my bike, okay, mm. why would you presume that I'm not a motorist? I am. And I do pay motor tax. I have a car sitting outside the door right now with a valid motor tax. They're sick with. So, you're pay, so you're paying there's your two arguments there. Yeah. I'm paying my tax, so I, I pay pay I pay VAT. The VAT that I paid on the bicycle goes into the exchequer. All that all that money then goes and pays for everything in the public. You're not a load of no. freeloaders. You're, you're, not, you're not free road, not freeloaders. No, I got you. I got you on that one. Tom, thanks very much. And that is a good answer to that question. It's the constant question. You know, when when they start paying tax, they get more structures on the road. But they, they all pay tax in different ways. Now, Wyon, you also, I think, were listening to Dan, and I think you're inclined to agree with him a bit. Well, I mean, I've I've definitely noticed that there are cyclists wandering around without lights. I mean, I ride a motorbike. Mm. Um, not every day, I hasten to add. But I, I ride a motorbike, and I religiously would have my lights on. Now, they're on automatically these days, as you say, on most cars, not all cars. And not all cyclists, you know. Um, I, don't think, I don't think it's a majority of cyclists who don't have lights. I think it's actually a minority, but it's a dangerous minority. And I think it's people in the city centre generally where there's lights because I think well you know I'm in a lighted area but to be honest the guy I nearly hit he he had no lights he was on an electric bike he was going quite quick and he came from behind the bus <laughs> so if he'd had lights I would have seen him easier probably I can't say I'd guarantee I'd mm. see him easier because that is a fact you don't always see them in a car and that's why generally cyclists who drive and drivers who cycle are better at both. Yes, because they're more aware. Because they're more aware, yeah. It was an, an, an electric bike without a light on it, right? Yep. Yeah. Wow. Bombing along in black. Oh, <laughs> you know? And I mean, what would worry me about that as well, as a car driver, is if he does hit me, and it would have been him hitting me, not me hitting him, yeah. he's uninsured. Yeah. He's going to absolutely, you know, I'm not concerned about them paying road tax because that, that, that Tom is right. Road tax these days is paid because of the amount of pollution you produce. Drive a car that use less pollution, pay less road tax. It's a fair, except for, except for in the case of SUVs who should pay some sort of penalty for the weight and the damage they do. But that's my... <laughs> that's a right. whole other day. <laughs> that's, a whole other, that's a whole other argument. All right, why um, so you'd, you'd be appealing to cyclists, I think, particularly put on, on high-vis and a lamp. Yeah, put on a lamp. I mean, the, the, the cheap flashing ones work brilliantly. I mean, there was a guy coming down the Curtain Street yesterday, and he had one of those red flashing lights. It's high intensity. You know, you're instantly noticing when he's driving between cars. Because obviously, if you're a cyclist and you're not on the segregated tra- lanes, and there should be more of those, but anyway... Um, but if you're not on the cycle lanes, you're you're filtering through traffic. You're not obvious if everyone else has their lights on, unless you have a flashing or something that makes you stand out. Very good. All right, Wyon, thanks. That's Wyon Sansfield. Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. An electric bike, and a fella dressed in black, and no lamp on the bike. They're out there. Look, there's probably for every 
most of them would be like Tom and they'd have their lights and their high vis and all of those things. But you've got ones out there who were in back and no light, no. You know, you also probably have drivers who've no lights on and taken no notice either. <laughs> What's that they say? Are we all supposed to be in this together, looking out for one another? Eh? Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. In a fifteen minute period last night, half six to quarter to seven, I met four cyclists, no lights, no high vis, and three of them were delivery drivers. Uh-oh, they should definitely know better. Coming up, a connection between Bonnie Pin- Prince Charlie, Cork, and a shipwreck. You what? Yeah, Bonnie Prince Charlie, Cork, and a shipwreck. 0818 96 96 96. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie Access all areas on Cork's 96FM. Your guide to nightlife on Leaside. Hi, it's Michael here with an update on Cork's Entertainment. Earlier this week, writer and musician Kay Tempest announced their new album, The Line is a Curve, set for release on 8th of April. There's also a Cypress Avenue show coming up on the 1st of May with tickets now available from cypressavenue.ie Access all areas A compelling new music network collaboration featuring the unique and beautiful sound of violas and traditional music takes place at Triscoll on February 5th Seamus Mugura, Nee Varian Barry and Jerry O'Byrne join forces for a special concert at the venue with tickets on sale now Access all areas Feel free to let us know at Access All Areas if you have a show, play, exhibition or gig coming up or any live streaming events by emailing us here at aaa at 96fm.ie Access All Areas Your guide to nightlife on the side On Cork's 96FM That song will be familiar to you if you have any interest in the history of Bonnie Prince Charlie or the Jacobites or at that time in Scottish and British and indeed Irish history way back in the day there's a connection though between Bonnie Prince Charlie and Cork and a boat and David Sullivan who is better known as Scully so long do we know each other David I've even forgotten that your real name was David you've always been Scully to me You've had a fascination with this story for a very, very long time. And you think you've found a boat, a very important boat, in the life of Bonnie Prince Charlie. Tell us more. Hello there, PJ. How are you, Um, Right. uh, So, as you say, I took over uh, from my grandmother in 1987. And uh, the family entrusted... uh, thousands of letters and documents and graphs and charts that she's accumulated over her life. And it all really pertains to this one character, John William Sullivan. Uh, and the, uh, I suppose in, in Bear, on the Bear Peninsula, this man is better known as Morty Oak. Mm-hmm. And he had a ship. And uh, the ship... Uh, in in all accounts, fictional and non-fictional, was always called the Jutili or the Jutel. And it is the ship that brought 
Bonnie Prince Charles to Scotland for the Jacobite Rebellion. 1745. Yeah, the, the dates are not great with me, but the story is there. But So yeah. to tell me about this. The, obviously, if you track your own family tree back along, you're related to this uh, John William Sullivan distantly, weren't you? You know, you know, PJ, it's about the only thing in this whole story that I haven't really? managed to prove categorically. Yeah, yeah. There's loads of clues and... Uh, like, for example, one of the family stories, and I'm sure there's other people in West Cork who know this, um, Bonnie Prince Charles spent a night on Dursey Island on his way back from Culloden. Mm-hmm. We all have this story. It was in uh, um, uh, some of the largest book, The Coast of West Cork, as well. Um, and we all have this crazy story. And, of course, it doesn't fit in with the accepted history of the end of the Jacobite Rebellion. But... I have traced the ship back to this man, John William Sullivan, and I believe it to be in West Cork. Wow. So how did it get there? Because it also saved, it also brought him away from the rebellion. It brought him It brought him there and brought him away. That's what I think. But I mean, the nonsense of the real accepted official story is that uh, a ship, and there are a number of contenders for it, basically sailed in through a 50-ship blockade that the English had set up and just picked the prince up and sailed back to France. And my study shows that, in fact, he had been brought out of Scotland immediately after the battle, brought to Northern Ireland uh, and made his way down to Glencolum Kill. And it was from there that the Dutilly came in and rescued him. Wow. And did he know John William Sullivan, or was just he, John? When when the two men walked off the battlefield of Culloden, they were both the prince. Of course, was the like most wanted man on planet Earth, and Sullivan was number two. Right. Right. So he was second, second in command, really. Right. And Sullivan, so Sullivan actually got. He was executed. <laughs> he was. I was in Elizabeth Fort yesterday and uh, um, Jess and Jen were there and they were actually commiserating with us, you know, because our poor great, 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 great grandfather lost his head in Cork, you know. And had his head put yes. up on a spike. By South what Africa. happened to him was the, 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 um, uh, Lieutenant Appleton went to bear with uh, 30 men. They surrounded the house. They shot him dead. They then brought the body back to Cork. They towed it behind the ship and they put him up on the gallows in Cork. They chopped his head off and they stuck it on the south gate of the city. (laughs) 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 It wasn't wasn't a good day for him. They really wanted (laughs) him to know they disapproved, didn't they? So when, when your grandmother died... Uh, you got all of these papers because clearly she had a lifelong fascination. So did she believe that she was related back to, to John William Sullivan? But we, you could never find proof. Yeah. I mean, she had all this information in her head. Oh, really? And uh, yeah, and, and I, I mean, I just couldn't. I just couldn't retain it, half of it. So with the help of computers, DNA, um, genealogy software. I, I have managed to push the story forward. 
So my grandmother, I think, was just happy enough to leave the, the, the odd clues that we had in the family as to who he was. But I think, to a certain extent, the family were also trying to distance themselves from him. Yeah. You know? Yeah. He was a traitor. Yeah. And Ireland was a, a colony, you know? Yeah. Now, you first put up on Facebook at the end of September that you'd found or believe you had found the wreck of of the ship. And at the time, even though you did put up a couple of photographs of yourself and your son, you, you didn't say where because you wanted, you were quite concerned about preserving it. Can you tell us where it is now? Um, I'd rather not. It is a protected wreck now. Um, okay. uh, the archaeologists have been down with me to see it. Um, where we are at the moment with it, PJ, is that um, it's 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 a it's a registered under a different name, so it's it's logged under a different name. But the wreck is exactly the same length as the Jutili, and there's no ballast. And what's really unusual about this story, and the reason that it's taken so long to kind of track it down, is that the ship was sunk in Kenmare Bay. But the wreck is in Bantry Bay. I see. That's a bit of that's, and, a, that's a bit of a, a stretch away. Yeah, and and the real like the way I've been studying it is that I think the family were trying to to preserve it. You know, that's that's what was going on here. So we spent years and years droning areas of the sea in front of the Sullivan houses, and eventually. Uh, I found the wreck smack bang exactly where I thought it would be in front of one of the Sullivan houses. And you're handing all of your findings, have you have you handed them over to the state now? Or are you in the process of doing that? It, it's in fact it's kind of the other way around. The state have been fabulous and and are helping me with it and advising me and providing me with you know everything I need to keep keep the. The research going, you know, it's, uh, it's fabulous. Now, I think you're doing a talk on on this whole adventure, and where you can spend some time going into detail. Uh, when's that happening? That's tomorrow night at half seven. Okay, and where can people get to see this? It's on Zoom, I believe. Uh, it'll be a Zoom uh, presentation, yeah, and it's uh, that's www.mariner.ie, and I suppose. If you were to Google David Sullivan, Scully, Dutilly, it'll come up on your Google search, you know. Excellent. It's, it's, it's a fascinating story. This, And I guess there's a book, there's a documentary. Is there a concept album in it, Skull? <laughs> I know the I way your mind works. That, yeah. I know the way <laughs> your mind works. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, the problem with the, with the book, I have the book finished. The book is ready, but every time... Every time I make another discovery, my book is has to be altered and yeah. redone. You know, it's like every, every the, the amount of information that I'm getting about it now is is extraordinary. You I, know? Can, I can see history television channels queuing up to make documentaries about this as well. You know, it's it's brilliant. It's it's funny. I, I, you know, an amateur historian in West Cork changing the history of the Jacobite Rebellion. You know, it's fantastic. Fantastic. Listen, I haven't seen you in a long time, but I always say I'll see you soon, my old pal. Take care of yourself. PJ, thanks a million, man. Cheers. That's David Sullivan. You'd know him as Scully.
uh, from Matisse, an amateur historian who has found a shipwreck in the General Bantry Bay area that changes the accepted story of the Jacobite Revolution in Scotland. Like, and this is through amateur sleuthing over many, many years. Brilliant story. Speculation in the papers this morning, and I think the Cabinet, Kevin Riley from Virgin Media, was confirming there an hour ago on Twitter that the Cabinet will indefinitely meet now Friday to discuss what to do. Neffet meets tomorrow. There's a lot of excitement now uh, to the tune of the restricting or the lifting of restrictions for COVID restrictions. Um, And with that, of course, will come a return to the workplace. And for tens of thousands of people who've been working from home, it comes from, uh, you know, a lot of questions to be asked about that because people have settled into working from home and will be moving back into the office and it's going to bring change. Uh, Tina Coy is with cscpartnersrecruitment.ie and we've spoken before. Tina, good morning. Are you there? Yes, sorry, PJ, I can hear you. Good morning. I know. (laughs) Technology is breaking down today. Good morning. And yeah, we're all on the edge at the moment, but we'll keep going. Good, good. Now, this is what we're talking about. If if restrictions end soon, a lot of people will be heading back into the office. Does everybody want to go back, I guess, is my first question. Uh, it's kind of a mix. Um, I, I think a lot of people have become, well, naturally enough, they've, they've in a lot of cases, have enjoyed the time. Um, you know, the commute is gone. They're able to reconnect properly with family um, and and do their work quite successfully in, in an awful lot of cases, especially office-based. But I think what's really going to happen is the next while, um, those that were fully remote, uh, will become hybrid. So they're going to work home and office. And I, I think that's important from a business perspective, but also for themselves and for their own career um, to kind of be able to spend time in both locations. Do you think people want to do that? Or Some people in two years, you can become quite comfortable doing something you were forced into. Do you think the hybrid yeah. is, is a model that will suit a lot of people? Um, yes and no. Um, I, I, I think, okay, you know, depending on, on the family dynamic and, and kind of what's going on, um, it can work quite well if your you know, children are gone to school every day and you have a, a massive chunk of time on your own, in your own home to do what you need to do. Um, but decisions and um, meetings and stuff like that, while they've been online, you're really not getting the actual human touch. Mm. Um, and a lot of people can be overlooked in relation to um, promotions and stuff like that. Mm. The other thing as well, which a lot of people haven't really been talking to, is that those that have been working um, fully remote, businesses will need to do a risk assessment on their home environment, um, their home office environment. Yeah, and there's a couple of things that have come out I've noticed. Now, the two of them happen to be in Australia, but I wouldn't be surprised if it had come here. And that is people have an accident in the home um, during their work time. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Who who covers what? Yeah. So risk assessments need to be looked at. And right, realistically, um, businesses would need to mirror the work environment at home. So they have proper workstations, desks, that kind of thing, proper chairs and GDPR as well. As you know, it's, that hasn't gone away. Yeah. Um, but just information um, that, that people might have in a home office, how secure is it? So these things need to be looked at. So businesses, if they are looking at going into a hybrid situation, or keeping their staff fully remote would need to be taking these things into consideration. And indeed, um, employees, which is with the best will in the world, might want to stay working at home, but working off your bedroom floor with your laptop on your bed is not ideal. You know, so I, I really think, um, or on your kitchen table, um, that needs to be looked at as we as we go down. So you're going to find that people who would have a spare room or that can convert something into an office on their own premises will probably be much better fit for working this particular type of way. Yeah. Now, another thing that's going to change is business travel. We, we now know there is absolutely no need to go to Madrid mm. or to go to London or to go to even even to go to Boston yes. for a meeting. There is no need. Yeah. There isn't. And, and, and recently I've just seen that 20% of airlines revenue is business travel. So it's their most lucrative um, part of their businesses. So that was has had a knock-on effect and it will continue. So I think um, the e-commerce side of things um, and virtual transactions um, in these particular spaces will increase over the next number of years. But bear in mind, leisure travel, because we've more time yeah. um, and if people can work different kind of hours and hold on to time, they'll be able to get away. So I think the leisure travel will increase, but definitely the um, business travel will. Yeah. You know, businesses are looking at, and the huge cost to it as well, PJ, yeah. you know, to send somebody away. Yeah, it's massive. I know. So a lot of them will, will kind of look at this. I know someone who's been working remotely for almost the full two years now would only go into the office once or twice a week purely because they don't have access to a certain server and they have to go into the office to, to get access to it. Yeah. But, like, we were genuinely talking a few months back about, right, what if I was to head off now out to the sun for the winter and do my work from an apartment in Spain rather than do it from my home mm-hmm. in Douglas? Like, my boss can't really stop me doing that, can he? He can't. Yes, he can and he can't. It depends on, on, I suppose, on contract. You'd need to sit down and have a chat with them or virtual chat with them, as the case may be. But we also have to kind of look at, again, um, the, the risk side of things. You're working in a different jurisdiction. You know, is the, is the systems that you're working off, is that secure? Um, and and th- there's quite a lot to it. So I, I think it is something that will happen down the road a lot more. Yeah. Um, the bigger corporations can kind of manage that. You know, but the the the, the SME um, medium sized businesses that could be a bit of a, a bit of a pain. But yes, there's no real reason why not. Um, but maybe from a legislation point of view and your contracts, that could yeah. maybe be a sticking point. But it does depend. Yeah. Lastly, and it's something that comes up uh, every time the moving back into the office is is discussed. Will there ever? Do you think that an employer should be allowed to know your vaccine status? Oh, yeah, that's a sticky one. I mean, it's it, it's it's private, as you know. Um, I don't think so, because if you are, it's up to people if they want to, to give that information over. But no, like if you, um, 
which I have seen, you, you don't have to tell your employer that you're pregnant until there's a particular time frame. Yeah. Right. Um, you don't have to tell them if you have health issues unless it, you have had a medical assessment. Mm-hmm. So like, I don't know, you know, what way this is going to go, to be honest with you. Um, you know, we have we have rights and we have freedom. Um, and at the end of the day, we we go to we give a certain amount of our time to a work situation. We're contracted for that. If you can do your work successfully, keep yourself safe, um, you should be fine. But then again, employers really do have to make sure that people who are working for them, mm. that they are looking after them within the work environment. So they need to keep that distancing and all the rest of it. But we just don't know, uh, PJ, down the road what's going to happen. It's like everything else this last two years, you know, so... It's it's almost um, as much of a pitch into the unknown as the start of the pandemic was how we actually come out of it in the end. Okay. Tina, thank you very much. That's Tina Coy, CSC Partners Recruitment.ie. Remember the crazy learning curve that we all went on uh, two years ago? Looks like we're all headed on another one. If, if, as we hope, this is all over soon. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 0818 9696 96 96. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. Should there be more co-ed schools? Is it time to put an end to same-sex schools, as it were? All boys, all girls. I think all schools should be mixed. We're not living in a zoo. We're all mixed in real life. It's bonkers that you'd split schools based on gender. Our two-year-old will go to a mixed school. I went to a mixed school. I thought it was grand. Never knew any different. It was male and female in my home. Had boys and girls as friends. My husband went to an all-boys school and thinks to this day he was disadvantaged from a social point of view. We quite a lot in on cycling as well. It's, it's, it's one of these sort of hot-touch issues. It's so popular now and yet so divisive in society. How about the electric scooters? I mentioned this yesterday. How about the electric scooters? They're being driven around urban areas with no lights. One on the Douglas Road last week, practically invisible, Guy dressed in black, no high vis, no lights, and they go on the footpath at speed. And they expect pedestrians to have eyes in the back of their heads. They're road vehicles, after all. They need to be at least monitored by the guards and maybe given a little lecture about safe usage. I was saying yesterday that yeah, obviously you're looking out for cyclists and pedestrians, but electric scooters are the bane of my life at the moment. Because I, dr- I drive in to work in the morning and I'm usually heading down it's the southern road there down towards Paddy the Farmers and there's a couple of people on by, on, on scooters who just shoot out and you, I always stop whether the light is red or green I'll stop at the bottom just for a sec if it's green just to let whatever inevitable scooter fly through the junction there at whatever time it is just after 7 in the morning cyclists need to have more respect for other road users says that message 
Mary says we've been paying road tax a lot longer than 2008. They just rebranded it that year because they weren't using it for what they were supposed to be using it. Roads and later for water. I have a car I rarely use. I still have to pay the same amount of tax as a taxi on the road 24-7. It has no bearing on how much carbon you use. Sounds like it does, but not really. I need a car for my job sometimes. It's infuriating to see a whole lane taken up for a cycle path who don't pay for it. I'm not against polluter pays, by the way, but we're not doing that way. We want to go that route, road taxes via a fuel levy is the closest. We have a few more to come back to with regard to that. But first of all, do you know what's happening on the 14th of May? On Saturday, the 14th of May in Turin. Yes, it is back. I found this last year and it's much better than the original. If it's back, 14th of May. Eurovision for the 20s. <laughs> the disco mix. But they are at the moment selecting six songs. RTE opened a competition towards the end of last year to select songs and singers to pick someone to go forward to represent Ireland in Turin in the in May. The semi-finals will be on the 10th and the 12th and the grand final is on the 14th. Last year, last year of course, we didn't make it to the final. Uh, Leslie Roy, I think she was last in her semi-final and there's been a lot of upset with the selection system over the last few years. How the heck do you get a song written and get it submitted and get it listened to and get it voted on to see is that the song that will go forward to Eurovision? Now it seems to have changed again this year in that there will be a special Late Late Show where we will get to vote on six selected songs. It's a far cry from what we used to have which was a national song contest could come from the Opera House or maybe the Gaiety Theatre in Dublin or someplace where we'd have a national song contest, big ball gown and dress suit night in in a huge venue. And it was a great event. And we selected our singers to go forward. Interestingly enough, I don't think we've actually won it or come near winning it since we've done away with the national song contest. I could be wrong on that one, but I don't think that I am. But what about getting a song into it? There are dozens and dozens of songwriters and singers up and down the country writing and producing their own music and doing really well with it online in particular, one of which is our own Stephanie Rainey. Stephanie, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. How are you getting on? Good. Have you ever thought about writing a song for Eurovision? Is it something? Is it anything that would take your fancy? Um, do you know what? It's a, a very, I think the Eurovision has become a very kind of complex issue over the last couple of years, um, just from a musician's point of view. And I think as well for, for fans of the Eurovision, you know, I grew up listening to, I grew up watching the Eurovision um, and it was always like something that everyone sat down and watched and enjoyed. And I think somewhere in the last couple of years, it kind of got a little bit lost. And I do think it's kind of come back around to itself in the last maybe five years. Mm. The competition itself um, has become, I think, less sort of, you know, there was a, a time there when it was really, it was a bit of a spectacle, like, you know, and I think a lot of people shied away from even wanting to enter it. Yeah. But now there's some really great songs and really great acts coming out of it. You know, uh, Daddy Freer, they were the, I think they were Finnish. Yeah, that's right. They had a huge hit song off it. And like Maniskin, the guys who won it last year, they're they're like one of the biggest bands in the world now. They're huge. Um, yeah. So I think, if you'd asked me five years ago, I would have said no. Uh, I would never have thought of, 
of doing anything with Eurovision. But I think now that the competition is kind of coming around to where, you know, countries are sending proper acts over, mm. um, it would be something I would definitely consider. And plus the platform of it is just, it's huge. Like, it's, it's massive. It's enormous. You mentioned Maniskin. And last year, I suppose, I would have been a, a traditional fan going right back. I can, I, I've been to the Eurovision five times, attended it. and But in the, of modern times, I was said, Italy? That? And what I had mistaken forgotten to do was look at the social media they developed and won that title on social media from the day their song was selected it can be won now with your social media platform before the before the contest even begins it can i mean you know obviously social media has blown the whole world of music it's blown the whole world open really like now we can all contact each other so easily but for music and musicians it is possible to really um you know, to really land a moment online mm. that would that would you know create your career. I mean, I had that moment with Please Don't Go. That's what. That's, right. that's why I I'm able to do what I'm doing now. But it's um, I think the Eurovision has changed, like I said, slightly in the last couple of years. And I think Ireland, you know, I'd like to see Ireland. Like I was approached actually this year about singing one of the songs that had been chosen okay. uh, for the final thing. And uh, obviously, like I'm kind of you know a singer-songwriter in my own right. So it w- wouldn't feel right for me to kind of go on and sing a song that I hadn't written, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, so and it, wasn't the right, it wasn't the right time for me either after just having having sure. uh, Jackson, sure. my first baby. You know. I was thinking that. It wasn't uh, this, is, this is news to me, by the way, Stephanie. Was it someone in the in, in the world of RTE came and asked you or was it a writer of a song or somebody came and asked you? You don't have to reveal who it was. It was, was actually the right, the writers got in touch with me um, to... to, to uh, to potentially sing it, um, and so I, I, I you know, I, I, I turned it down uh, this time around. But I have a song, you know, I've, I've a few songs bouncing around that you know I've always considered could be good for Eurovision. Maybe not for me to sing them, but for somebody else to sing them. So, like I said, you know, I think with the way the competition is changing and yeah. the, the, I guess the impact that the acts are actually having, I think now is the time that I think artists would consider it. And I've just seen, and you know, because I'm obviously friends with a lot of people on social media who are, you know, musicians. And I think Brendan Murray, who was, um, he was on X Factor. That's right. Uh, and he's, he's doing one of the songs this year. And so is a girl called Janet Grogan. And she's, ama- she's an amazing singer. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, I'm hoping that when we're watching on Friday, that the songs will be uh, as good as some of the acts that are going, going mm. forward, you know. And I really think if Ireland kind of got, if Ireland got those songs back and, and really put the, the kind of, like you said, you know, years ago it used to be a, song, a national song contest. Like, you know, songs like Rock and Roll Kids, like that's one of my favourite songs. Like that is such an amazing song. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I don't think we've had that going out there for yeah. a very long time. We haven't had that golden track, you know. I remember, and I've, I've met Paul, Paul and Charlie and I've, I've told them this story. I remember watching that song. It was it was on the, the Late Late Show. And, and I turned around to my wife at the time and I said... The Eurovision's over. Yeah, yeah, I knew it. I mean, we we haven't we haven't sent a song like that out in quite a long time. No, I I don't, and I don't. It's it's very difficult to pinpoint why or what is going wrong wrong in the selection process. You know, I mean, I think part of the issue for me as an artist. So, say if I was approached to do it again. Mm. One of the things that I don't love about the selection process is the fact that you have to go through um, 
you know, on, on TV, you know, you go on the Late Late Show and you, five people sing a song and then you're, ch- you're chosen from that five. And I think that for me as an established artist is kind of an off-putting process because, you know, I don't want to go on the Late Late Show and potentially not be chosen to do something. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, but After the National all Song of, Contest you know, would up be your... just that, wouldn't it, Stephanie? If we had a National Song Contest with ball gowns and dress suits, that's exactly what that is. Yeah, exactly. Exa- I mean, I, I do think there's a process to be found, but maybe not so, you know, I mean, I, I don't remember the National Song Contest. Um, was that a kind of, was that a televised event as oh, well? Oh, yeah, it was, like, it was like a mini Eurovision in itself. And they were voting, they were voting in, in the juries in, say, Cork and Limerick and Sligo and Galway. And there was one that wow. alone. And we had a, a jury and all the juries came in and they were selected that way. It, this Now, this is it's going back a while. It hasn't been done in, in a very long time. Uh, there was a public vote. There was a jury vote. Now, the Late Late Show will be done on a, on a public vote, but there was a jury vote. So it was like a mini Eurovision. Yeah, I mean, that, that's an interesting concept. And I think the fact that there's so there'd be so much choice as well attached to that, you know, that there'd be more than just five or six acts. So people would probably be more likely to, to put themselves forward for it. Eight, I think for me... Eight or ten, I The think. process... Yeah, I think, you know, it's just... It's, it, it feels like it might be... Could it potentially be damaging to your career if you go go forward like that and then you don't actually land the Eurovision? Uh, and yeah. then, you know, if the Eurovision doesn't go well and you don't, you, you don't place at all, it's, it's all... There's a lot of considerations to be taken in if you are an established act already yeah. about... I guess the perception of it, like if you go across to Eurovision and you don't place anywhere. Yeah. I mean, and I, I think the point system is a bit strange as well at the minute. It's it's hard to know what's going wrong within that, you know, at, at the moment. Well, we've had so many different versions of the point system. Uh, the last couple of years have been just insane where all of the juries vote uh, on the final and then the public vote is counted and that's redistributed and that just throws mm. everything into a tin. I, I imagine for, for an artist writing a song and, and putting it into the contest, you're okay with 40-odd juries voting on you because they're generally taken as a cross-section of people who know a bit about the music industry. But then when it's thrown into the public realm, anything can happen. Absolutely. And you know... There are songs that cut through more than others, you know. We've all seen it throughout the years of the Eurovision where there's been just amazing, amazing tracks that people just fall in love with instantly. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, like, we had it with that that Finland track. Like, that is such a good song. Um, and it's been all over the radio. I mean, you hear, I hear, I hear it nearly every day still. Yeah. Um, I, I do agree, though. It's like, it's hard to know what's going to happen once the public vote comes in. But the public vote is important because they're the people who are who are sitting down to watch yeah. the the Eurovision. Do and, you know what I mean? And that so is Joe, like, right, it's hard to know what... They're watching it on the telly, Tony Kulikosha. That's coming right back to Manskin last year because they were enorm- exactly. enormous on YouTube, enormous on Spotify, and people had decided to vote for them even before the contest began. That's it. And, you know, I think they they created such a hype. So I think there's a lot to be done for it, but obviously... It's it's hard to know whether then it's a fair competition based on you know like if it is established acts going over and, and an established act has a huge following, yeah. um, it's going to be tricky to know how anybody else can can possibly you know rise above that and beat that with with a song you know because sometimes a campaign is bigger than a track. Yeah. It's a it's a much much different competition than it used to be and fascinating to know you were approached, Stephanie. You never know. Your day might come. Uh, but good luck and thanks for being with us. How's the little fella? How is he? 
He is absolutely flying. He's massive. <laughs> he's two and a half months and he's I swear to God he's like he's he's so long he's so big uh, so it feels like it's flying by really really quickly Fantastic. but loving loving all of the little moments now I have Fantastic. to say and you're back gigging in in March April and no doubt we'll talk around that time again Stephanie Rainey Cork's Cork's finest Stephanie Rainey approached by one of the artists or one of the writers to sing a song for this year's Eurovision but turned down the opportunity but not ruling it out for the future. It is all changed again this year. You'll be voting on them. The six of them, I think they're doing it late, late. On the 4th of February. I'm reading, well, I'm audio reading at the moment, uh, Phil Coulter's life story. It's a big, huge tome of a book, and he reads it himself, which it's a joy to listen to. But he's, he talks in the book about how he, he won Eurovision, and he got placed a couple of times. But every time he was asked by, asked by a couple of countries to do Eurovision for them, he looked at the song, looked at the songs of the previous years, looked at the styles and wrote a song to suit the moment and then gave it to the artist. It's a, there's a science to it. And you can mock it all you want, but it's the biggest television show in the world every year. May 14th. Thanks, Stephanie. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie Cork's 96FM has a shiny new phone number. 0818 96 96 96. Save it to your phone now. Save it to your phone now. 0818 96 96 96. The new number to call Courts 96 FM. I think by Friday we'll have a full list of who is going forward to represent to compete to represent Ireland on the 4th of February on the Late Late Show. Now we mentioned that restrictions will know an awful lot more in 24 hours from now, but the plan is anyway the cabinet meets today for a discussion, and then Neffet is meeting tomorrow. And we've heard this morning through Gavin Riley of Virgin Media that the Cabinet is scheduled to meet again Friday to discuss what Neffet says tomorrow night. Neffet is believed to be uh, of a mind to relax certain restrictions, particularly to do with pubs and things like that. And as you know now, the procedure is Neffet meets, and then the Chief Medical Officer Dr Hulahan writes a letter uh, to the Minister for Health and to the Taoiseach and then that letter is supposed to be top secret like goes to Cabinet. It usually leaks like a sieve and we know what's in it by late on Thursday night. And then the plan is that Friday we get a Cabinet meeting and probably even an announcement from the Taoiseach that evening. That's That's how it all seems to be falling together. And it does look as if restrictions will start to ease very quickly. Eamon Ryan saying this morning everything should be gone restrictions-wise, with very few exceptions, by the end of March. But we got this message in. I don't think restrictions should be lifted. I'm fully vaccinated and boosted. I was a very close contact. I tested positive four days after my close contact. I don't agree that boosted people also shouldn't have to restrict movements, which they don't now. I do believe we need to lift the restrictions, but now is not the right time. Nurses out there are pleading that now is not the right time. And I'm sure it's a discussion we'll come back to over the the couple of days ahead of us. But certainly for sure, uh, some easing of restrictions is coming and coming quickly. 0818 
96, 96, 96. The most expensive place in Cork to buy a house. Couldn't surprise you really, would it? That it is Kinsale. The average house price in Kinsale, 426,000 euro. I won't tell you where second place is, and I'll ask Derek Hill not to tell you either. Uh, the CEO of Geo Directory, who's one of the people putting this uh, list together. So I'll ask you not to tell me who was second, uh, Dara, for particular reasons. Charleville will be the cheapest place at 143,400. How did you compile these figures? Good morning. Uh, good morning, PJ, and thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, uh, Geo Directory, uh, what we do is we review um, the whole housing market we, we actually create a our core business to create a list of all, of all of all the addresses and the buildings and as part of that we look at the the change in house prices and we do it on a national regional and county level and then within the county we, we're sometimes able to break it down to a number of towns which you, you've been able to quote us there at Kinsale and Charleville so they're they're taken from uh, CSO figures uh, which are based on the house sales that have occurred during the last 12 months so we, we've ranked them out to make it easier to people to consume them. Now, obviously, some houses will be more than more expensive than others in, in, in the great scheme of things. So you take an average, say, of, of everything that's sold and changed hands. Exactly, exactly. So we take an average. So some of those, you know, some of those buildings will be sort of, uh, you know, much more expensive than the average. Some could be a little bit cheaper, uh, but we do an average across the whole, across all of the sales. So like in Charleville, there was only 76 sales in, in the last uh, 12 months. Um and the area with the highest sales was what's called Cork Southside, which had uh, nearly 1,200 sales. Yeah, this would be the T12. It's a big variation. The T12 yeah. air code. And the north side is the T23 yeah. air code. And quite a difference between the two of them. The south side, 340, we say 500. And the north side, 200 and would say the close to 280. Quite, quite a difference in there, but an awful lot of different places in between. And places that you think would be more expensive than others aren't. Well, it, it, yeah, it just depends on, I suppose it, I suppose it depends on the property that was for sale and the, the appetite for the buyers to spend in that area. You know, it, you know, it's it, like, what they're saying in, in, in the property markets, location, 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 but it's also timing uh, and, and the type of property that comes to market. So we don't know with well, these figures aren't revealing the state of the property uh, and how easy it was. was. Was it straight move in or was there a lot of renovation, you know, yeah. uh, involved in these properties as well? So it's, 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 not, it's, it's, it's very interesting, but it gives you a good sort of, uh, sort of feel for the market without yeah. giving you the, you know, you know, huge, precise detail on each individual property now. Location, location, location was always the, was the <laughs> same. But what about facilities? What about infrastructure? How important is that rate or can you tell? Yeah, uh, well, we 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 we're looking at that actually during the, during this year, um, and, and we're we we'll have more information on that's probably probably by July. Yeah, and we are looking. We 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 do see there is a correspondence to uh, the level of facilities and the amount of uh, money people are prepared to pay for for a property uh, or a dwelling. Uh, so you know your closeness to a park, your closeness to shops, your closeness to you know other you know chemists, doctors, other infrastructural Public transport. things. Public transport. Yeah, public transport definitely. Yeah, yeah, that will all influence the uh, the price you're willing to. Uh, closeness to schools is another one. Closeness, obviously, to work, uh, that all influences the price you're willing. You're actually, people will be willing to pay an extra 
X amount because mm. they're on a public transport route or because they're near a school or because, you know, yeah. so there's a, there, is a, there is a basket, I think, there. Um, a lot of it to do with family and, 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 and work, to be honest. Yeah. Can you see prices continuing to go up? Well, we're in a kind of very tight market at the minute. Um, uh, when, when, what we try to do is look at the whole property market in Cork, okay? And one of the things we, we measure is the number of the flow of buildings and the flow of properties through, in, in and out of, 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 of Cork in this case. So what, how we do that is we look at the number of addresses added in Cork over the last 12 months, and we see there was just over 1,840. Now, that's down 25% of what was added in 2021. However, we have to make allowances for the fact that for the first three and a half months of the year, you know, construction was severely impacted by the COVID restrictions. And then also it took them a while to, you know, wrap the sites, get them working again and get everything in flowing. And where we see that, where we see, so that's a sort of a 25% decrease is a negative. What we see the positive is that the under construction figure, that's the pipeline of new sites that have started and the building is up and running on them, that's increased substantially uh, by, to 2,370, which is 14.5% up on the previous year. So while the supply was low, in relatively low compared to 21 and 2022, the, 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 the sites that are opening and the future supply that are going to, people are going to be moving into houses in the latter half of this year is well up on, on what it was in the previous years. So that's a positive. Um, and then the other thing, we, you've probably heard a lot of this in the news uh, uh, about vacancy rates and derelict rates. So another thing we use is utilisation, if you like, rates with, uh, of the housing stock and uh, vacancy yeah. and dereliction are two measures that we use for that. And what we see there is the Cork is, uh, the national average for that is about 4.4% and Cork is running at 4.1%. It's only one of six counties that has seen an increase in its vacancy rate over the last 12 months. A small increase, but nevertheless an increase. Yeah. Um, what should There's always going to be a need for a level of vacancy, however, because people move and change and all that kind of stuff goes on. What that natural rate is, it looks to us like, you know, there's different, there's different speculation about what it should be. 4% four, four, 4 looks like a pretty good place to be, so it's not that it's bad. It, you know, but it's it's about what it should be, uh, and then the dereliction rate actually decreased. We look, we measured that over five years, and across Cork, it it was very good. Actually, it decreased yeah. by around fifteen, sixteen percent. So does so another that what that means, PJ, is about fifteen hundred buildings that were empty are now being used. Well, that's good. good. That's good development. Yeah. Right, last, yeah. Are, yeah. are there things that people are? You know, fashions and trends. I suppose they go with housing, and they go with everything else. Are there things that are more important, more more popular now, in terms of what people want to buy? Uh, well, <laughs> we we don't really look at that. We don't look at the motivation of, pe of purchasing behind the figures, to be honest, in in this report. Uh, but what we've seen over time is that there are certain locations that just become popular and that drives price because the demand goes up. It's real demand and supply. Your 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 you know your one oh one economics stuff, you know, demand goes up, supply goes up, and then demand is outstripping. currently what we're seeing in this market is demand is outstripping supply. Um, and 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 how's that reflected in? Well that's reflected in the fact that house prices are going up. Um, and and, and um, rural areas you can see uh, quite a number of the top ten and it'll go through them all in a minute. Quite a number of the top ten would be yeah. rural. Maybe that indicates that working from home and good facilities to work from home are, are popular with people. Um, you, 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 you know? Yeah, we've, we've definitely we've definitely seen starting to see a trend of, like we've seen a decrease in vacancy, as I said, in 20 of the counties, okay? And a lot of them in rural areas where people, it's, it's well, it's not clear, but it looks like that is people moving back into the communities. 
um, uh, which is a great thing. You know, um, okay, COVID hasn't been great at all. It's been terrible. But if there is one side benefit from it at all, it's been that people are now working from home and can work from home. That reduces their reliance on staying in cities, uh, whether it's, you know, you know, Cork, Waterford, Dublin, Galway. It doesn't matter. We're seeing that those rural areas around those uh, counties start to take, uh, start the vacancy rates start to drop, yeah. which means that people must be going and working from home. Okay. okay. Right. Moving out of the urban centres. Now, it's not a huge, massive flow, but it definitely will help. And it's obviously great for those communities they're, work, they're moving into, for the, for their econo- the local e- economy there and, you know, in the future for the schools and clearly for the GAA teams going forward as well. Okay, all right. I like that one. Dara, thanks. Dara Kyo, CEO of Geodirectory, the Geodirectory Residential Buildings Report. Uh, the average property cost in Cork was 288900 give or take uh, 288900 but it went from the most expensive being Kinsale at 426000 just under just over and Charleville at 143000 the bottom five were Charleville Mallow Dunmanway Bantry and Mitchellstown in that order I would have thought Bantry might have scored higher in the chart but no Charleville, Mallow, Dunmanway, Bantry and Mitchellstown. Mitchellstown on 208,500. And then the bottom five of the top ten, Skibbereen, Cork Northside, Middleton, which was the most expensive in East Cork at 285,000. Carrig Navarre, 291. Clon, the most expensive in West Cork at 307,000. And then the top five, Watergrass Hill, 317. You can see there with the good rail network in the East, in East Cork. Carrigaline, 332. Cork City Southside, in other words, the T12 air code, 340,500. Kinsale at 426. The second highest on the list. I wonder, can you guess what it was? 352,439. The second most expensive place to buy a house in Cork in 2021. Do you know what it was? Can you think what it was? Think and tell me at 083 396 96 96. Some breaking news, Gardy have arrested a second man, also in his 30s, in connection with the investigation of the killing of Ashling Murphy. He's being questioned in relation to potentially withholding information. Another man in his 30s arrested yesterday on suspicion of murder is still being questioned. I think under the section of the Criminal Justice Act, I think they must make a decision on that man arrested yesterday. They must make a decision on him tonight, I think. This evening or tonight is what they're going to do in terms of either releasing him or charging him. Then the second man arrested this morning, also in his 30s, in relation to potentially withholding Information. So things are starting to move at a pace into the investigation of the killing of Ashling Murphy. Can we just talk? The opinion line on Corks 96 FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life, and health insurance. CMIG.ie. 
Michael Simon Murdoch and the best music mix. Weekdays from midday on Cork's 96FM. Would 1,000 euro help you with all those January bills? Of course it would. I'll tell you how you can win it on today's show. Plus, all your favourite tunes to race you through Wednesday. See you after PJ from 12 here on Cork's 96FM. And no one's guessed it yet who at place was second on that list of top 20. Kinsale was the most expensive. Then... In third place, anyone in the T12 air code, Carrigaline in fourth, Watergrass Hill in fifth, Clon, Carry Navarra, Middleton, Cork Northside, and Skib. But second place, anyone care to guess, came in at 352,439, the average price of a house. The average wheat wages wouldn't even be that. <laughs> it wouldn't even be anywhere near the average wheat wages of our Premier League footballer. But still, it's a nice way to tell you once again that Premier League Live is back on Saturday at 96mm.ie with Trevor Welsh, powered by Talk Sport. This weekend, another busy day for the lads. Everton v Aston Villa at 12.30. Leeds against Newcastle at 3. And Southampton against Manchester City at half past 5. The Premier League Live online with Now. Uh, stream live Premier League action with a Now Sports or Sports Extra membership. And listen then on Saturday at 96fm.ie or the Cork's 96FM app. Now, a group of fishermen in West Cork have donated a house to a local charity. They bought and donated this house. Uh, it's a local charity working with people with intellectual disabilities. This is despite the fact that the fishing industry is experiencing very, very difficult times. Uh, John Nolan is general manager of the Castletown Bear Fisherman's Co-op. A very, very generous gesture, John. Good morning. Good morning, PJ. Yes, we we celebrated in um, 2018 50 years in business. And it was never about a big party or glitz or glamour when we were going to celebrate it and we looked at board level to see what we do. We wanted to do something that would be a tribute to the people that started the organisation, the people that kept it going. And as an industry, obviously, like, we've suffered huge tragedies over, over the years. We, we lost many, many, many fishermen. But we lost two boats in total, the seafloor and the St. Gervais. Yes. That was five last, lives lost on the seafloor and uh, four lives lost on the St. Gervais. And the community suffers greatly, like, really, you know, when you, I, I, I tell this how a person in the Bera Peninsula that hasn't been affected with the loss of a loved one. And in some cases, like in the case of the St. Gervais, we never got Gary or Jack back. Mm-hmm. Um, we know we got Kieran Harrington, a young fellow of 18, uh, and, and we, we got what you call it, like as well, like um, Timothy Anglin back, like who was found in the boat. And we said, what what could we do? Like there would actually be some sort of a tribute, and we're all about the community as well. And there's no doubt, like in West Cork, like that we have one of the best charities, I would say, anywhere in the world, not even Ireland. Mm. I was listening to a radio program about a man of 71 years of age, and he was actually crying on the radio. He had three special needs children from 30 to 36. Mm. And his wife and himself hadn't got any respite in two and a half years. Mm. And I said, God, you know, there's something wrong with us. We can't take care of people like this. And when they brought up at board level, it was absolutely unanimous like that what we should do is we should like look to see in our community we have coaction, we have special needs and could we build a house for coaction? 
and it was agreed that we'd build a house COVID coming in like and like we had to agree because obviously if you build a house you have to be able to put people in to run the house and it gives great respite like for the parents and it's great dignity for the, the for, for the, the, the people that use it and it took us a while even though we committed that we would spend 250000 to do this it was actually only officially opened about six weeks ago mm. we're thrilled to be associated with it like we we, we, we you know we don't get enough respect in our industry, really. Like, you know, we are, as you said, going through difficult times. And um, how fishing is treated in Ireland is a disgrace. Like, if you take something like monkfish in our waters, we get 8% of the quota and the French yeah. get 60. And, and Brexit was another disaster on top. And we're so happy, like, to be associated with Coaction, to be able to do something like this. I think if we can't take care of the people that really need taken care of in our country, we're losing our, 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 ourselves a little bit. Well, in a time that, that you are struggling, it's an incredible gesture and, and fantastic to see it done. Talk a little bit to me, John, if you wouldn't mind, about the situation. Like you mentioned there with the, with the monkfish, and, and you know what, I've been privileged to eat it in, in many parts of the world, and I'll tell you, the best monkfish I've ever eaten in my life comes from our waters. It's, it's our fish and, and it's brilliant and you only get a tiny, tiny, tiny amount of it. Your, your industry's really struggling at the moment. It is, yeah. Like, and like, you know, we, like, you know, there'd be a lot of anger, like, and what I see in the industry now is almost a, a lack of hope and Irish people really should be very, very angry about how our industry is treated. Like, we went into the European Union in 1973 as, as an equal partner. And we were a very poor country then. And quite honestly, we got screwed in our industry. Like, people didn't have the money to be able to exploit, like, the fish off our coast. We're totally interested in sustainability. Like, we can move Castledown Bear. 95% of our economic survival is dependent on Castledown Bear. We handle boats in the co-op from the Iron Islands, Carsevine, uh, Phoenix, Dingle. Castletown Bear, Skull, Baltimore, Union Hall, Kinsale, Crosshaven. And and like there are great people in our industry. But like to think like that, even in Brexit there now, like Brexit was nobody's fault. But Bernier was the person that negotiated the Brexit deal on behalf of the European industry at the end. And in the final days, and this is without even consulting our Taoiseach or Minister or Department, Bernier sat down with the UK, and if I was a UK fisherman, I think I should be entitled to 50% of the place caught in the channel. They had 29.1% before the negotiations started, and yeah. after Brexit, they ended up with 30%. They gained 0.901%. But you come around the corner then into the RSC, he lost. and we both did the fish herrings back in the 50s up off the Isle of Man. And I would think as an Irishman that we should be entitled to 50% of the herring quota. Sure. Right, because that's half between the English waters and Irish waters. And Bernier conceded 99.9% of that quota to the UK. Didn't mm. even think we were worthy of a, of a phone call. Like, our loss in, in quota species in Brexit is 45 million. And we have another 10 million of losses of squid above and rockle because the oh, British don't allow us fish there anymore. I remember, I remember covering, the, covering the rockle story. And, you know, it's an awful state of, state of affairs. John Nolan, a general manager of Castledown Bear Fisherman's Co-op. Ballincollig was second highest prices for a new house in 2021. Behind Kinsale, Kinsale 426,000, but you drop 
a cool 80 grand or more to Ballincollig, 352,000. So more expensive to buy in Ballincollig than it was in Carrigaline, than it was in Douglas, than it was in Bishopstown. There was Ballincollig, most expensive place in 2021. Uh, and, and not even Ballinlock, where they were talking about the prices of it. And Crossaven, no. Uh, Audrey's listing, by the way, in Hamburg. Hi, Audrey. 0818. 96, 96, 96. The best way to create a park which works for teenage girls is to talk to them. So this is a document um, brought out by Louise Jordan, who's a Green Party member on the uh, north side of Cork City. Louise, good morning to you. Good morning. Lovely to talk to you. And to you. Now, there's a lovely document which I see here in front of me called Make Space for Girls, which indicates that hammocks and adult swings and tree trunks, stools and shelters and seats, lots and lots of seats would be most... But why do you think that parks should be designed particularly with girls in mind? Um, Because they're not at the moment. And if you look at any old park, it's um, like my lovely one here near Popham, on Popham's Road. Um, It's three quarters for a playing pitch for men, basically. Um, now, I'm sure girls would love to play football as well, but we need space for other activities. And we need to have, and I see the girls hanging out in, in the kiddies department, you know, in the little play area for kids. And they're just sitting there on their phones. So um, I think it's time now we opened up a bit more and um, took took space for ourselves, you know. Mm. What kind of things, for example, would you, would teenage Louise have liked to see in her park? <laughs> well, I love to climb trees. <laughs> That's what I love to do. But um, I think what the, the suggestions is, you know, when we're talking to teenage girls, we have to give them um, solutions to this and suggestions, I think. And these graphics that I put up yesterday from a lovely uh, website called Make Space for Girls, it just gives them options, you know, to dance, to do yoga, to um, play chess even. I mean, uh, um, Michael O'Reardon, who, who's a great fellow up, up in the north side, cleaning up parks and up, up in Popham Park, found a chess, a big chess board mm. up in the, in the park, you know. So we just need um, uh, to invite girls in because they're not being invited at the moment. Yeah. Could you be accused of kind of maybe... Gender stereotyping, a little. I I could be, yeah, that's grand. I don't mind. But what I would, you know, I don't like using the... I'm saying make space for girls, but I really want to make space for people who want to do other things other than things. competitive sports. Yeah, yeah. I, I like know? the thing, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lousy chess player, so I'm no example. But I, I do love yeah. <laughs> to see a chess board in a park. Yeah. Because it's, it's a totally different thing. Uh, yeah. And it just it put other things yeah. into the parks, and not just necessarily for. But I love the adult swings, by the way, the biggest child, in the, biggest child in the city. Do you know? I'll, yes, yes, yes. There's something really soothing about yeah. getting me arse stuck in a child swing is not what I want to be doing at my age. You know what I mean? It, it's very painful, actually. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, so you're saying to our designers, you're saying to our designers and our authority, look, when you're building a park, great. We love the space. We want the trees. We want the grass. But talk to yeah. talk to the girls about what they'd like, as well as just deciding what you want to put in. 
Precisely. I mean, if you look at the one, the picture of, of the, the bicycle, the, the, um, the exercise bikes, yes, yes. and they're all facing, the, the feet of the bikes are facing into a centre point. Yes. So ev- everyone can chat. Yes. While they're, and g- girls love to chat. Mm-hmm. You know, and they love to do TikTok. Give them a little stage and little stumps around to sit on. Yeah. Easy peasy. But, you know, um, ask them what they want and show them these things, show them the ideas. Mm-hmm. We've got loads of good architects in Cork. Yes, and a lot of them, a lot know, of them females. And loads of them female, yeah. Do you, do, you think, do you think it's because the design kind of, and you know, it's, it's a bit like the, the Irish pub in a box. Do you think that the, the, the design for a lot of parks kind of comes out of a, a stock image? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's just a lack of imagination. It's not, it's not intentional to, to give the blokes all the space. But I tell you what, it's very important culturally to shift our mindset and to stop um, all the space being given to boys because it gives them territory, you know, and the girls feel they're excluded from that territory. Mm. Like, would you include, and it's a very, would you include skate parks and stuff in that? Like, um, Well, I think skate park, actually looking at the one in um, Fitzgerald's Park, I see a lot of girls skating there. So it's, it, it's just... It's just a matter of encouraging them, you know, mm. a little bit of encouragement. Yeah. I mean, I've nothing against skate parks or nothing against cycle thingies, you know, to let people go around and run bikes because they need to get out of the parks. Mm. Okay. Um, and they're not, they're not allowed in parks anyway. Well, you know, it's nice to start a conversation and we'll probably come back to this uh, tomorrow, uh, Louise. Louise Jordan of the Green Party. Uh, if you were designing a park, thank you, Louise, what would you like in it? So have a think about this. We'll bring it up again tomorrow. So there's a park, the green, across from your place. They're going to put a park in there. What would you like to see? Chess, chess board, chess table, hammocks, adult swings. What would you like? What would you like to see put in the perfect public park? It's something we will take up again tomorrow. Thank you, Fiona. Thanks, Fergal. We'll see you just after nine. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. See MIG.ie.